doing? Pulling the night shift? Oh, here. Boning up for your test tomorrow, huh? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to ETA this flight plan. They, they want to know what time I get the payload, but all they give me is the Bell Plane Muni at 1501. Mm -hmm. What's your takeoff? Uh, it's right here. E, then up to Capu, that's B, Muni, payload. Mm -hmm. All right, well, just break her down. Figure your distance from E to Capu, that uh, equals 10M. See? Yeah. Okay, now do the Bell. 5M. Right. Now, Compute your ground speed for this leg at uh, the uh, time distance values of uh, 5 and 10 nm. 1526? <laughs> you got it. That's right. Yeah. We're going to make a navigator you yet, son. That's Chris Stevens studying for his flight exam, bringing back memories of high school, uh, just school homework. I think... I think these are memories that you will never escape in your life. I've always heard, uh, you know, you, ne you never reach an age where you stop having nightmares about high school. At least for me. I don't know. It's been very true. <laughs> Test anxiety is very real. Uh, did you struggle with tests, Charles? Or I, okay, so like if any, look, I highly doubt we have any listeners that are like, still within high school age <laughs> but like if any of y'all are still within testing age don't do what i'm about to tell you but i used to do this strategy sometimes where like if i was like particularly really nervous about a test i would study like a little bit throughout the week but then uh the day before the moment i got done with classes and work i would just go to bed at like 3 p.m uh, or whatever the time was whenever i got off work and I would just sleep for like the eight hours that a human body needs. And I would just wake up <laughs> and just study up until the test. Yeah. So like I wouldn't be sleep deprived and I would still have the knowledge. <laughs> this strategy does not work though because your brain needs to sleep in order to retain information. Mm. That's basic science. That's something I did not realize. Mm. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. That was pretty much my strategy. Uh, what, what about you? What, what was your test anxieties like? I don't know. Well, I definitely, you know, I still get dreams where I'm like studying for a test or it can be a number of things, but high school is, you know, comes to my dreams every once in a while. I don't particularly remember a lot of difficulty. I mean, tests are scary. Let's just face it. They're scary, I think, for everybody. But I think I did a pretty good job in high school and in college you know, academia wasn't, thankfully, wasn't a huge problem for me. I'm not trying to brag here <laughs> to my own horn. Uh, but um, no, sorry. I just, what, something you said reminded me. So you're saying like you would go to sleep and then wake up and just study cram all the way up to the test. It reminded me that in high school, you know, as we were lining up to go into the classroom, I remember students and friends, we would just be like sitting by the door of the classroom with our books open, like literally studying from to the very last minute before we enter the classroom. <laughs> that reminded me of like another thing in my okay. college days where uh, I went to business college and a lot mm. of people that go to business college are of a particular flavor and they're not bad people whatsoever. They're just people that I normally wouldn't be with in my uh, <laughs> normal uh, group of friends. And all of that disappeared, though, the moment we were done with test. Because when you finish a test and you leave, everyone's outside of the door just talking. Oh, yeah. You're like, hey, would you put down for like number 18? I don't know. We're like, what do, you, what do you, is it like A? Is it C? Like, oh, no, man, I don't really know. Like the bonds were strengthened by the warfare of the test. It's a good like little icebreaker sort of mixer 
combo. You can just yeah, like hang out after absolutely. a test. So like I got like that's how I made friends with like a lot of my business school friends was just like we were just like, oh, man, I don't know, man, like that test was a doozy. Last thing before we actually start talking about the podcast, I want to focus again on this bite that we just listened to. Maurice here is very fatherly to Chris and sort of guiding him through his homework reminds me of, you know, when you're little and your parents are helping you with your math homework because you know, math can be difficult for a lot of people. You need some help with your parents. Do you remember the age at which your parents were just like, ah, no, I'm sorry. I can't help. I don't know what any of this means. Like, I can't help you with uh, this. Extremely early. <laughs> yeah. Because I, my, parents, <laughs> my parents don't, they don't speak English that well. So they never helped me. <laughs> In word problems specifically, or like that's a double doozy for a, uh, you know, for a non-English speaker, I guess. Yeah. Like I remember, I have a distinct memory of being like, six years old, I want to say. It was like right around the time in which you can learn to uh, read. And they would give us this blue plastic folder that had, uh, when you open it up, had a sleeve to the bottom left and it had a sleeve on the bottom right. And the assignment for the day was that you had to write keep on the bottom left one and return on the bottom right one. So like you would know which papers you had to keep and which papers you had to return, i.e. you had to get someone to sign it and then you, you know, bring it back to the school and give mm. it to them. And I remember, uh, you know, pointing at the folder and be like, look, look, this says return. Uh, and it was two syllables. So it was like a really fancy word. And uh, <laughs> my mom didn't know what return meant. So she was just like, oh, wow, that's really good. Which means she put that, that places her at the same education level as me. <laughs> she's like, ooh, she's like learning alongside you. Wow. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah, it's a, just you know, a different language for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was basically me growing up. But what about you? Did, was there, was there a certain age in which your parents could not help you? Yeah. My memory is pretty, pretty bad, but I think I would agree with you. Very early on, my parents are not. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I guess I'm. I come from a family where I'm the. I feel like I'm the first to complete college. My mom went to college, but she had to drop out for health reasons. Um, but yeah, at least in my nuclear family, for sure. Oh wow! Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about Northern Exposure. This is a podcast about Northern Exposure. We're called the Northern Overexposure Podcast. Northern Exposure is this. 1990s CBS TV series, largely flying under the radar right now. It's never been available for streaming. You can only really watch it if you have the DVDs or today, now they have Blu-rays, which is pretty cool. But our podcast analyzes each episode of Northern Exposure and tries to expand the reach of the show of Northern Exposure by inviting on a guest. Every episode, we introduce the show to someone new and get their opinion. My name is Lee. I've seen this show countless number of times. And Charles, you're my co-host. This is your first time watching every episode. Right. This is my first time watching every single episode with fresh eyes. And I got to say, for this episode, I am still confused why it is called A Cup of Joe. Yeah. So at the end of each episode, I will ask you, Charles, to guess the topic. So I, so I present to you the title of the next episode at the end of each episode and say, Charles, what do you think this is about? The title of this episode is A Cup of Joe, as you just said. It's not A Cup of Joel. There's a character named Joel. I, maybe that's connecting here somewhere. I have an idea for what this is about, but I'll bring it up whenever it is important, I guess, or when it, when it comes up actually in the episode. But I don't think it's a very um, 
it's not a title that connects to a lot of the plot. At least I don't think so, but I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't you hit us with the director and writer of this episode? Okay. The director is Michael Lang. He directed the previous episode, Cottage for Uncle Manny. So he's returning. This is his second episode he directs. I think he continues to direct in this season and as well in the sixth season. The writers were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green returning again. And of course, these are the writers that also go on to work heavily in The Sopranos with David Chase, who is the current executive producer of Northern Exposure right now. And the air date, November 22nd, 1993. I forgot to mention this is the ninth episode in season five. As we said, it's called A Cup of Joe. Mm, Okay, got it. Uh, Should we just head straight into the episode then? Yeah, I guess we can just, I think our typical format is we'll start off with how does the episode start and then we start to diverge and focus on one plot line at a time. Typically we got three plot lines, but um, this episode I think is no different. It's got, I think it's got three major plot lines, but the first plot line that begins the episode, you know, before we even see the title and the music and the moose and Northern Exposure and all that, uh, it's Maurice with uh, an extra, Mitch, just some townsfolk, this guy named Mitch. I actually don't know what they're doing, but I know that Maurice is watching a plane flying in the sky. Uh, yeah, what's going on here, Charles? Yeah, basically what you described, he's with Mitch, and they're watching the plane go round and round. And Maurice thinks that it's going to be Maggie in the plane, because, you know, she's your designated pilot. But Mitch informs him that it's actually Chris, his Chris Stevens, that is in the plane piloting. Yeah, Mitch says that Chris is practicing, I guess, training and studying for his flying license, which, you know, it's a very short scene. This is basically all that happens. Plane is flying. Maurice is like, oh, must be Maggie up in that plane. Mitch says, no, that's Chris Stevens. He's training to get his flying license. And Maurice doesn't seem so enthused about that. And then we cut to the uh, opening title music. Yep. And that brings us to the very next scene, which continues from the opening gambit. It's all four of them talking. Chris emerges from the plane along with Maggie. And they're talking with each other about Chris's uh, flying. And Maurice makes a remark saying, like, it's not for flake out artists and wannabes. (laughs) It's real work. So at this stage... Maurice is saying, like, this takes real principle for you to get through. This isn't for anybody that's willing to, uh, you know, just slack off. And then Chris replies back saying, like, no, test me on anything. Like, I got this. I've been actually putting in genuine effort into uh, learning how to fly. Yeah. Not only has Chris been flying as practice, he's been studying the books and studying all the rules and such and all the test questions, as we'll get to. I guess we heard in the soundbite he's going to be tested a lot in this episode. Chris is ready. He's very serious about this. And um, yeah, Maurice still, I guess, wants to challenge this idea because uh, when Maurice and Maggie are alone, Maurice sort of offers the idea of maybe let's, let's place a bet on this. Maggie thinks that Chris is going to get his license. Maurice bets otherwise. He wagers a sawbuck, which I guess I've heard that before, but I had to look it up. It's $10, apparently. A sawbuck is $10. Right. And uh, yeah, if if uh, if Maggie's right, she gets the $10. If Chris fails, though, Maurice will win the $10. 
Yeah, I wish they would have brought up that bet throughout the episode because I actually forgot. Yeah. All the way up to the end where, like, uh, I think it's Dave that makes a remark about betting. <laughs> and I totally forgot about it until, like, I, I saw the opening gambit just now to be like, oh, they're betting. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's, like, a flaw in the writing. They, they should have had, like, one more reference. It's a real problem because it is a really nice conclusion that we reach at the end, but I think... Because, I mean, you just said you forgot about this whole premise. I just, I, we'll, we'll get into it as we go down this plot line, but pretty much immediately after this scene, Maurice is sort of championing Chris, like he's supporting him and rooting him on, which seems counterintuitive to this bet that he placed. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely want to talk more about that, but I think you're right. It's kind of weird that they drop the whole idea that Maurice is technically, he doesn't want Chris to win, but everything else that he does in the episode suggests that he wants to help Chris out, which I guess is nice. Right, right. Well, that brings us into where the paths diverge in terms of plots. We can either continue down this road, or we can go to Joel and Maryland, or we can go to Ruth Ann and Halling. Which one should we go down? Let's do Ruth Ann and Halling. For some reason, I feel like this is the plot line that I remembered the most. Now, I said before that I've seen Northern Exposure countless times. I feel like the fifth season I've only seen maybe twice, and the sixth season I've, I've only ever watched once. So this is very, you know, I got, I've seen this before, but it's kind of uh, less cemented in my mind. But the plotline that I remembered the most from this episode was not Joel's or Chris's, but distinctly Hauling and Ruthann's, which to start off with, um, is actually, <laughs> the scene is really crazy because I think it starts off immediately and it's, if you didn't have the subtitles on, I don't think you would understand a single word of like what's going on in this conversation. <laughs> uh, what Ruth Ann says, she says, there's a Rufus-sided towhee at Surly Slough. What? <laughs> uh, this means that there's a specific bird that they like to watch. There's a bird that they're looking for at a specific location called Surly Slough. There's a Rufus-sided towhee at Surly Slough. Right. So there's a bird that they're hoping to capture photography-wise, and they're wanting to make a trip out of it. Uh, there's actually something really special about the Rufus-sided Toki, is that, like, right around when they were filming this episode, so, like, 1995, they actually realized that the Rufus-sided Toki could be split into two different species, mm. the spotted Toki and the eastern towhee. So, like their name suggests, the eastern towhee is usually found from Texas all the way over to New York, and the spotted towhee is on the west side, but curiously, is not found in Alaska. Hmm. Which would explain how rare it is for them to have a sighting here uh, nearby Sicily. So yeah, as you said, they're going to make a whole trip out of this. A camping trip, camping slash bird watching. Lots of fun. I mean, we've seen episodes before, at least one, where they're going bird watching. What's the name of that? Let me look it up. Love's Labor Mislaid, season four, episode 17, is the last time we saw both Holling and Ruthann go out on an outing to search for a, a very rare, specific bird. So yeah, this is par for the course. And I like that Ruthann is like, she's going to make the breakfast. Her, her famous turnip stew as well is what she's bringing. But Holling calls dibs on the coffee. He wants to cook the coffee. He says, no more dishwater. Apparently, Ruthann is really bad at making coffee or something. 
I guess, you know, if, if Holling runs the brick, he's probably pretty good at making coffee, I would assume. Right. Still, I don't think this applies. I don't think this ties into the title, A Cup of Joe. I don't think that has any significance <laughs> with this idea. But yeah, still trying to figure that out, I guess. But we'll get to it. Yeah. And what's also happening after this scene is that Ed emerges from the storage area. He was trying to, he was just trying to clean it up or something like that. <laughs> but he's really into this diary that he found. And it was documenting this trapper who got trapped in this huge blizzard back in like 1879, I want to say, if I got the date right. 97. Um, 1897. <laughs> got the numbers flipped around right there. And he shows it to Ruth Ann, who says, like, oh, yeah, like, uh, my grandfather, he actually died in that same blizzard right there. And Ed's like, oh, wow, like, I'm really sorry about that. And she's just like, oh, no, don't worry. That's, like, so long ago. I, I barely even remember him. I have no ties to him. And he actually came here because he was trying to open a five and dime. And I looked into that because I'd actually never heard of that. And a five and dime is simply like a store that sells merchandise at five cents and 10 cents. It was started by Frank Winfield Woolworth in 1879. He didn't really invent the practice, but he definitely popularized the idea because his store, which was called Woolworth, it was named after him, really took off at this time. Um, he had the idea of purchasing items directly from the source, and then he would set the items at a fixed price, which was the five cents and the 10 cents. So that eliminated the need to haggle. That was a huge revolutionary thing back <laughs> in the, you know, in the, the late 1800s right there. But unfortunately, by like I want to say like 1935, the rising cost of inflation would make them change it to 20 cents, and then eventually they would abandon the practice altogether. And Woolworth still was successful for like a good number of decades, all the way up till 1997, when the last one in the United States would close. Mm. But here's the interesting thing about this. I had no idea these two things were connected, and I bet a lot of people <laughs> might not know this. When they were starting out, they were buying out other stores. And one of the stores they were buying out were like shoe stores. And this particular shoe stores that they were buying out split off and became its own entity. And it's called Foot Locker. Nice. So like they're actually related. Woolworths and Foot Locker. And yeah, Foot Locker is still kicking around. I mean, I think. I don't, I don't know if like, I don't know if the recent pandemic has like wrecked it. But like, I think it's still kicking. <laughs> Yeah, I know Woolworths from that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? They like, I think mm. they're in a Woolworths or they mention it. And Charles, you'll know uh, where you're, you know, where we're from, Lake Charles. There's like the historic downtown area. There's a building that has the like old Walgreens logo painted on the sign. It's not a, it's not a Walgreens, but um, I, my grandpa told me that used to be a Woolworths. I don't know if that's really? true or not. <laughs> But um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like they have abandoned the practice, as you said, because of inflation. Though we today we have like Dollar Generals and uh, Five Blows. Though I heard recently Dollar General is no longer a dollar. It's like a dollar up to a dollar forty nine on some items. Really? Yeah. Ah, it's like that. Ah. <laughs> Didn't that happen to Arizona tea? Oh, 
Wait, really? Arizona tea is no longer 99 cents? I thought so. Oh, Isn't no. it like, I, like, even though it's like on the can? Yeah. Like put on, I got to look right. into this okay. later. Well, no, there's that uh, really funny bit in Atlanta. There's Atlanta, an ep- yeah. an episode of Atlanta <laughs> where they do like fake commercials. It says 99 cents on the can for Arizona tea, but with tax, it always comes out to more than 99 cents. But the joke of the commercial is like, the price is on the can, though. It says 99 cents. Why am I paying $1.19? What's going on? What we're trying to say here in this long-winded explanation <laughs> is that, like, this show is, like, showing its age. Yeah. It's like they still think, like, Woolworths, five, uh, five and Dimes are still essential. Though that is, like, historically in line because, like, that, that was, like, a really popular concept back in um, 1897. So it would <laughs> yeah. make sense that Ruth Ann's grandfather would try to make a business in Oregon with that. For sure. Now, it's important to point out that the diary that Ed finds is, belonged to what says, I think, uh, the title or the inscription is The Life of Amos Robinson, February 1897. So this is not Ruth Ann's grandfather's diary, though he... Um, he lived at this moment in time, and as we find out, he is actually included in this diary. We'll find that out later. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention about Ruth Ann's grandfather, I don't know if his name was Robert or whatever. I just wrote down Bob. So she calls him Grandpa Bob. Um, she, I don't know if she really knew him. No, she didn't know him at all. She never met him. But uh, she read his letters, apparently, somehow. She read letters that he wrote about Alaska, how it was big and wild. And I think as an audience, we're supposed to assume that that had some sort of effect on Ruth Ann at whatever stage in life she was. And so she must have taken that to heart at some point in her life. And maybe that um, is an explanation for how she ended up in Alaska now. But then after this, Ed takes the diary back home and he's like, well, he's reading it at home is what what we see next. And he's startled by something in the diary and like he takes a step back. He literally steps out of his seat, you know, his back against the wall now as if like something in this book is accosting him or something. But it's a very short scene. But what happens after that, Charles? Well, the next scene is in the brick where Ed is reading from the diary. He's really into it. He's talking with Ruth Ann and Holling and Holling reveals that his grandpa, Grandpa Gustav, was also in that same blizzard in 97. That's right, yeah. Hollings, Grandpa, in the diary, Grandpa Gustav. Apparently there's some characters. Amos, as we said, the person who who is writing the diary. There's also a Pepe and Gustav. They survived. Of course, we already know Bob, who's included in the diary as well. Bob, which is Ruth Ann's grandfather, he did not survive. And Ed uh, has some... He has some like dark information that he's afraid to share and he's trying to, I don't know, he's trying to unload it with Hauling and Ruth Ann. He's like, what if I knew something very terrible that would hurt you both? Like it would hurt my friends if I said it, should I do it? And, and <laughs> Hauling's like, well, that's what friends are for, buddy. Like we, come on, spit it out. <laughs> um, yeah, he, well, Ed admits or Ed explains that this, according to the diary, yeah, they ate Bob. The survivors, Amos, Pepe, and Gustav, I don't know whose choice it was, or I think they like drew straws or something like that, but they decided that because resources were scarce, the only way to survive would be to eat Ruth Ann's grandfather. <laughs> that, like, there is like a webcomic. I think it's from Extra Fabulous Comics. Mm. And 
it's it's only four panels, and it's like this guy he's looking at a computer, and the first panel goes like, "Police is hunting people for sport," and then the next panel is like, "Ha, huh, chubby penguins, they're so hilarious," and then like the third panel goes, "The president." ate a baby and then the fourth one it's like a kitten ha and like the way like it's structured is like the president ate a baby like i that's that just got flashbacks to that yeah whatever you said like anything of like a human being eating another human being Bob. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is certainly something in which i did not expect um this plot line to go to yeah right there definitely it's like really wild <laughs> definitely not that's like the whole donner party idea right isn't that what the right party right is? but they have a lot of fun with it in this episode which we'll get to but obviously it's pretty grotesque pretty startling at first so we understand why ed had some trepidation to, to withhold this information and not wanting to explain it and as soon as he does say it he realizes that he's probably made a mistake or you know what what he did <laughs> sorry what he did uh, what, what he did did not help Ruth Ann and Hollings relationship they're about to go on this excursion together alone and they've got this new information that has come to light would you ever share that i don't think i would ever share that like i just don't see the benefit <laughs> well <laughs> why would you do that well i guess it is true that it's like you know, Ruth Ann says this. She says, like, I didn't know my grandfather. It's so far removed. Like, that doesn't really affect me. So with that in mind, maybe I would share this information. But as we go, as we do come to see, as much as Ruth Ann, you know, is disconnected from her grandfather, this has some, some strong um, ripple effects in her subconscious that will come to the surface throughout this episode. Yeah, I mean, this whole plot line is like, no wonder you remember this one, the most distinct, like, because yeah. it is wild. <laughs> it is like, it even ends in like a wild, spectacular fashion. I actually really liked the ending uh, when I watched it this time, but we'll get there. It's a pretty interesting way to, yeah. to cut it off. But before we leave the scene, I wanted to compliment the way it's shot. Whenever Ed relinquishes this information, everyone's very still, as you could imagine. They're just like, wait what did you just say? Everyone's like still and can't really move. They're still talking to each other, but the actors largely are not moving. The camera has this really interesting way of floating between the characters. So it's kind of like a pan, but it really has a floaty feel. I guess it's on a tripod. I can't really tell. It's definitely, it's probably not handheld. I don't think there's very much handheld stuff in Northern Exposure, but um feels like it very like slowly drifts from Ed to hauling, to Ruthann. It's like, as we can slowly see this information like dawning on each of these characters, <laughs> how, how serious this is. Yeah. Uh, I would also like to compliment them on the subtext of using meat mm. because Hauling is telling Ruthann that like, he just caught a huge smock of, smock? Is it smock? Hawk. Hawk. Ham hawk. Yeah, hawk. So he says one of those nice big slabs of ham right there. I'm going to see throughout this episode, there's a lot of imagery uh, relating to meat right there. I got, actually, I didn't know where to put this, but I noticed, I noticed a lot of fat imagery in the beginning. So meat and fat, maybe there's some correlation. I didn't clock it as much towards the end, but in the beginning, when Ed first finds the diary, either he or Ruth Ann says something about like, he was like moving moving about some suet logs. Suet is like sort of like a fat. Um, it's it's a way to uh, like, I guess, like store fat, especially if you're like 
on an expedition or in the wild or in like the frontier. Uh, suet is also, it's like beef fat. It's also something you can cook with in a way. And then in this scene that we're talking about now, Holling says, well, what's wrong, Ed? You look like, uh, you look as white as a brick of lard. Mm. So two back-to-back references of, of fat. I don't know if there's more later on, but maybe that ties in with the meat, I would assume. No, it definitely does. That's a really, really good observation right there. Well, let's carry the storyline forward and see that Ed is going to be still helping out at Ruth Ann's store just before her and Holling depart for their little hunting trip right there. And Ed remarks like, I'm so like, you know, I'm really sorry that this is happening. You guys must be uncomfortable. But Ruth Ann and Holling have to comfort him to be like, no, like, you know, it's it's nothing. We're still pals. Like, look, you know. I, I totally understand. It's just like a source of protein. And it was also like over a hundred years ago. Let's just put it away. This is, I feel like this is also the scene where when Holling enters, he's like, what's the matter, Ed? Something eating you? Like he's like, Holling's having too much fun with this joke. Like according to Ruthann, he's been forgiven. But as we see, like Ruthann hasn't really forgiven him for this or his his bloodline, but he's having too much fun. He's like, gloating about it <laughs> to make this sort of comment like what is what's eating you ed is, is everything okay <laughs> it's like come on come on dude it's really weird but yeah we also have walt in this scene and he sort of enters the conversation where you know hauling everything are like don't worry ed it's fine like we're gonna be okay and they start talking about it, like it's just a matter of survival it's just meat protein i think walt says one of the, you know he he enters the conversation at some point and um, hauling again, he's got to make another joke. He says, it tastes a lot like chicken and everyone gets really quiet. And hauling has to say, well, I saw that on the Discovery Channel. Of course, he doesn't know from experience what human flesh tastes like. According to the Discovery Channel, it tastes like chicken, he says. And when they leave, we're just left with Ed and Walt looking after them, sort of speechless. Hauling and Ruthann get out of there and the very last image of the scene is... Ed and Walt, speechless. Right. And this idea of cannibalism or just like being left down to your last straws is carried forward in the next scene where Ed is at the brick and he's joined with Shelly and Joel. And they have like Mm. a short little discussion (laughs) about who they would eat if it like came down to it. Like chips on the table. What are we doing if you have to eat somebody? And they say like, oh, well, would you eat, you know, this particular fella? And they're like, no, he's got like too many tattoos. And Joel mentions that like maybe like the quality of his being might not be good. Like maybe (laughs) you might be like riddled with, I don't know, like some sort of disease. And then they say like, well, what about uh, uh, Maurice? How does that sound? They're like, no, just like on a personal basis. I don't think I can do it. (laughs) And I think they just settle on saying that like they would eat Joel if it came down to it, he, he fulfills the criteria. <laughs> well, they would, they start with like Ed and then Shell, like they would eat each other, it turns out, because the criteria is, well, Joel says, avoid smokers, avoid anyone with diabetes or infectious disease, like you said. I think that's funny. Ed says, even if you cook them well done, and he's like, I, would, I wouldn't take the chance, you know? Um, but what Joel says is like, find someone young and healthy. And even though apparently Ed eats a lot of fried foods, It's like, I would still, I think Ed is young enough and healthy enough is what Joel says. So they would eat each other is what they say, but they do settle on Joel at the end, as you said. And he says, well, thanks. I'm honored, I guess, you know, but I think (laughs) unabashedly they are all having a lot of fun with it and no one's like really 
no one's taking it to heart that it's like, I would eat you. They're like, they take it as a compliment. It's like, oh, you would re- really, you would eat me? That's great to hear. So I think this is an important scene to have because it is, as we said, such a bizarre and grotesque idea for a storyline to talk about this cannibalism. So they're having a lot of fun with it and making it humorous and like a shared friendship aspect, <laughs> at least in this scene. Yeah, I mean, it's also demonstrating the idea that it, like sometimes you just need to do it in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And like you shouldn't take any... Um, personal slight against it. So like Joel doesn't freak out when they say like, oh, we'd ultimately would eat you. He he takes it in stride and realizes what they had to do. And I kind of reflects on the plot line between Holling and Ruthann's with between their grandparents was saying like, you know, ultimately he had to do the decision that he had to. And that's what makes them reconcile on their difference. So these three, these three young fellas, they've mm-hmm. already reached that conclusion. But like the older people are still trying to come to it. I like how they get on this topic because it's Shelly who brings it up at the beginning of the scene. And she's talking to Ed. I mean, Joel is nearby and he's like, wait, are you talking about eating people? And they have to get him in on the the conversation. They're like, no, let me explain. But the way Shelly brings it up to Ed is she's like, you know, what would you do in this situation? You know, if you, if it snowed a lot and you had to eat the toothpaste and the lima beans, um... (laughs) I thought that was really funny because that second thing is actual food. Like you can eat lima beans. It's not like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the joke, but it's pretty great. I, I laughed at that. Isn't there like a survival rule? It's like three, 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 where it's like, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. It's like, if you're out being exposed in the elements, you can only live like three hours and then you can only live without water for three days. And I think it's like, you can live without food for three weeks. What's so it's the, like three, three, three right there. What's the three hours for? Uh, I think it's if you're, you're exposed to the elements. Oh. Yeah. So if you're out in like the freezing blizzard or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I know like if you get lost, you're supposed to stay still. Don't move around because then it's harder to get. I don't know. I guess it depends on the circumstance. Obviously, there are instances where you might want to move, but in some cases they say like, don't leave your position because it just makes it harder to find you maybe. I don't know. I know for blizzards, like if you're stuck in yeah. your car, <laughs> you're supposed to remain in that. Like, don't leave it. And also don't leave, you know what, we're not, we're not a survival. We're not, yeah, I don't want to give any <laughs> advice. Doctors, I feel very, we are not, yeah, someone's going to die. Yeah, I, I'm going to, someone's, someone's going to get themselves into right a, now, Charles, and they're listening <laughs> to this podcast. We're going to give them uh, terrible <laughs> advice and they're like, well, yeah, we died because we listened actually, that actually to the Northern happened, Northern right? Overexposure podcast. What was that highway that had happened? By the time we're recording this, I think it was like this week or last week where a bunch of people were like snowed in on this highway. I bet they were yeah, all listening yeah. to podcasts, Charles. They're going to listen to our podcast and die. Well, that one got a lot of attention because I think uh, Tim Kaine was there for like 27 hours or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, like some ridiculous amount of time yeah. being stuck on the uh, Virginia highway. That's what it was. Okay. Well, all right, let's get back to Northern Exposure. The next scene is... Well, they're out searching for the birds. I was going to say hunting, but they're not really hunting. I guess they're hunting to make a photograph. And it's cool because Holling has his sort of rifle stock, but uh, his camera is attached to the rifle stock. So it's like a gun as if you were shooting, but it's just going to take pictures. It's not lethal. And we can already see pretty much at the onset of this excursion, Ruthann has some frustration with Holling. Like he suggests that he's going to go down to this muddy part so that she can go. It's like, I'll take the muddy 
area that's going to be a nuisance. You go do your thing that way. And Holling has a very interesting bird call, I thought, in this scene. He's like sucking on the back of his hand, and it makes a somewhat convincing bird call noise um, by, by this action. And he does end up seeing the bird, and he gets a photo of it, and he, he does try to call Ruthann. He's like whispering calling in a way. But I guess if you were to call out her name, it would startle a bird. And sure enough, the bird does like escape very quickly. Right. I don't see how he's in the wrong well, with yeah, this one. Yeah. I, I think we as an audience are supposed to be led to that uh, conclusion right there. Uh, my question is, is that camera setup legit that Holling has? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it could be very possible. You know, I guess what you're asking is like, how does he actually snap the picture on the camera? Because the camera and the trigger are not in the same spot. Right. I did see some like wires below the base of the camera, but there is a, um, on many cameras and probably the camera that he's using, there is a little spot where you can plug in what's called a plunger. And uh, this is used a lot in stop motion photography, um, or even if it's sort of like a remote control, but it's uh, wired. So it's not, um, I guess it's not remote technically, but it's like a wired control where it's just like a button that you press. And this button is attached to this cord that plugs into the slot where the plunger thing would go. I guess that button's called the plunger. So I guess if you wanted Hollings setup to work, you would plug in this plunger and route it close to the trigger to where when you pull the trigger, it activates that plunger button and it snaps the picture. Hmm. So I think it could work. I don't, I'd have to look at the setup he has to see if it's actually functional, but in theory it could work. I think I'm seeing like a shot of him holding it against his shoulder and the trigger area is uh flat. Like yeah, it's smooth. It doesn't seem there's like there's anything there. attached to that. So yeah. I, I there, think I do. Yeah. I think I agree with you there. It doesn't seem like it would make any sense that it does work. <laughs> I think it's mostly a stylistic choice. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, the, the scene is that like they're arguing over each other and, and Ruth Ann ends up by saying like, you're a vincor to the bone. You're a cannibal of the bird world. You're a cannibal of the bird world. Yeah, she's very upset that he didn't uh, share this sighting with her. She knows, well, he knows that it was on her life list, which I don't know if she said that before in a previous episode, but I'm to assume that life list means like your bucket list for all the birds you want to see in your life. Now, I don't know if this uh, specific bird is on Holling's life list, but we do know that it was on Ruth Ann's. So it almost feels like, in a way, cheating that he got to see it and Ruthann did not. So I sympathize with her there. However, as we said, I think the audience is to understand that Holling did no wrong. Like there is nothing, literally nothing he could do. He saw it for a split second. He was only lucky enough to take one picture before it fled. And yeah, I think this is just a scene to show that Ruthann has a lot of repressed feelings about, well, maybe not specifically about Holling, but definitely about his family and it's translating, it's uh, projecting onto Holling here. So she she lets it out and she storms off at the end of the scene. Right. She returns back to her store in the next scene involving them. And Ed is still tending to the store. And Ed's surprised that she shows up. Ed's wearing a pretty sweet t-shirt. It's like, it's like postage stamp. Like, not postage Ooh. stamps themselves, but like, they're like the outline of what you would have for a um, a letter, it's kind of a unique design right there. I don't think I've ever seen a t-shirt like that. Yeah, I like this. I'm trying to look at it. It's like the re- it's like what they stamp on your postcard if you get a receipt. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I didn't notice yeah, that. Yeah, there That's we go. Cool. And 
yeah, Ruthann is just irritated. She talks to Ed and saying like, no, like the Rufus side of Tohi eluded me once again. Um, <laughs> you know, I can't believe that this is happening to me. Hollings just a jerk right there. And that's essentially what's happening in a scene. She's just mad at herself. Yeah. I like the staging or the blocking where like they're on either side of the aisle and Ed is sort of leaning over the aisle, sort of inquisitive. It definitely feels like a bit of a, you know, having a heart to heart with a friend. I was going to say therapy, but it's not that it's, I mean, it functions like that, but it's definitely like having a heart to heart with a friend. And yeah, exactly what you said. Ruthann does point out that she's, um, well, at first she says, no, I'm not mad at him. And then immediately she says, right after that, yes, I am mad at him. So she realizes that there's some conflicting feelings inside of her that she's still trying to parse. And she ultimately resigns at the end of the scene to say she's she's most mad at herself. She's mad at her grandpa Bob, too, for being the one that perished. Um, she says it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and the best dog wins, and hers didn't. So she's upset that her grandfather was the one to die out of these four in the journal. And um, she's upset that that is part of her lineage, that she is like, she's the one to go. Yeah, like I see how it plays out at the end with that language. But like (laughs) within just this context, though, yeah, I mean... (laughs) Some people's grandpas died by like having a penny fall down on them from like the Empire State <laughs> Building. Like there have been some freak deaths freak in this accident, world, and that yeah. does not reflect onto their, their lineage yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think if someone told me, I don't know, like like if any of my uh, like ancestors bit the dust because um, they like stubbed their toe or something, like I wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't say like that. It's indicative of your failures, Charles. Yeah, Yeah, it's not not at all. I see what you're saying. That's why I'm confused on this plot line involving uh, Ruthann. Like like why she would be mad, I guess. I mean, yeah. It's not like she has something else within that's like creating this turmoil. Like it's not like there's another thing that she is struggling with that she's projecting these feelings onto that. Then I would understand. But at this point, um, we haven't really been led to really anything of that nature. And I, I think this is where this plot line kind of gets a lower grade for me. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, there's room to try to connect this um, to maybe a more deeper meaning, like why she would be angry. Like, the fact that Hollings' grandfather ate her grandfather would connect somewhere deeper with her. But, I mean, they're trying to do that a bit in this scene, but it doesn't really connect. So the only reason we have for Ruthann to be angry at him is pretty surface level. Just the clean and simple fact that well, Holling, your granddad ate my granddad, and that pisses me off. Like, why did he do that? Yeah, but like, had it just stayed at that level, I actually would have been like, eh, it's it's pretty weak, but what, that like, whatever, that's yeah. okay. So but like, it, it goes further. Ways, yeah. yeah, it goes further than that, because she's saying that like, she's mad that he died first, not that like, necessarily he got eaten. And I mm. think that's is the thing that confuses me, because like... Why Why is survival or like being strong the thing that's motivating her throughout this episode? If it was simply like the 
grotesque act of, you know, her grandpa being eaten, <laughs> then like I would understand that a little bit more to be like, yeah, like, you know, that's kind of like a visceral thing. I can see why she would react this way. But I just don't see why she's taking this to mean that she is a weak individual. Like her bloodline right. is no longer fit to thrive. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, as you said, like that could happen to anybody. Like a blizzard will kill you and it will kill a lot of people. It's especially in 1897. So the fact that her grandpa died, like, and also I just don't think Ruth Ann is the type of person who would be like, oh, like my family is weak. Like she wouldn't judge merit. Like she wouldn't judge value of character based on like, can you survive a blizzard? Like that's harsh, especially like, I don't know how old her grandfather was at the time of his death, but I mean, she's old right now. So she's certainly not strong in the sense of like, she's old. Like she's not the most healthy person <laughs> on the show. So yeah, I see what you're saying. Like she's, it doesn't make a lot of sense that she would place value in that. Um, but that's kind of what's happening. It seems that she's just like upset that there's not a lot of fortitude in her bloodline, but I mean, there's more to explore here in this plotline. So yeah, it's going to be carried like inverse wise on the next scene with this plotline, which is going to be hauling uh, back at the brick. He's chopping up meat once mm, again, mm-hmm. and Shelly talks to him and says like, "Hey, um, I think she needs him to do something." And he he's kind of snappy with her, and she says, "You've been snappy ever since your trip." And then hauling reveals like. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've been snappy because it didn't go the way I wanted it to. Ruthann was being a, a huge hassle. And he complains about her and says that, you know, she's complaining about every little thing. And he ultimately, he ends up by saying, like, I will say one thing, though. That, like, <laughs> even though my grandpa was a huge rascal, he at least had the fortitude to make it out. <laughs> and for some reason in my head, that one clicks more than Ruthann's side because he's not ruminating on whether or not his genes are strong. He's just being spiteful and just saying like, yeah, at least he just made it out. He's not trying to make a connection to like say that his bloodline is strong. I read that as I wrote down sickly pride. He still has some weird sickly pride for his grandfather. Like you should feel ashamed that you're, I, I, well, at least the way this story is portraying, this plotline is portraying this, um, Journal entries like he, sh- Holling should be feeling ashamed that his grandfather ate Ruth Ann's, but he's always making jokes about it and like gloating at the fact that his grandfather in this in this scene gloating that his grandpa Gustav was you know had had the strength and fortitude to survive and you know he's like you said he's irritated with Ruth Ann's you know it's like it's it's not. Holling's saying it's it's not my fault that her grandfather died. Right. Uh, you know, I didn't ask I didn't ask him to freeze himself to death or go ice fishing with his bare hands. So that is that how he died? Why would you I guess he, if you're really hungry, <laughs> you gotta catch some fish, but like you could starve to death. But yeah, I could see how you might freeze to death if you're if you're ice fishing with your bare hands. But the next time we see Holling, Ed is um basically here to make things even worse. <laughs> like uh he says like I don't know. I don't remember what's going on, but he's trying to mend this relationship, I guess, between the friends, Holling and Ruthann. And he says something like, well, she didn't mean it, Holling. You know, when she called you a patronizing SOB, she she didn't mean that. Um, I'm not even sure if he's like trying to help, actually. Like, I don't even know why he's here, but whatever he's doing, it's making it worse. Well, he's here because he's ordering a cherry malt head 
which is oh. very striking. It's a, <laughs> it invokes a lot of red imagery. And Ed also says that she's going to see American red starts, which is, again, invoking the color red. So it's uh, very bloody, just like meat. And it reminds us of cannibalism right there. So I think there's a lot of subtext that's going on between this language. But yeah, this is also where Ed tells Holling of the inner issue that Ruthann is having. That is a dog-eat-dog world. And that's the thing that makes him reflect on his grandpa's actions. Right. Okay. And Holling takes that information. And as you said, Ruthann is like out, I guess, on her own to go watch these birds. Like she didn't invite... Hauling, of course, she's going to check out these red birds. And the next time we see them, Hauling is like, well, starts on Ruthann and we hear some like bird calls, but it's obviously like a human person making these bird calls. Ruthann's sitting there eating her sandwich and she's like, okay, Hauling, like, I know it's you. Come on out. Like, what's your, you're wasting your time. Let's, what are you, what are you trying? And I've got a soundbite of this scene that I can play now. What happened, happened. We know what we know. I wish it hadn't, and I wish we didn't. But we do, and that's that. I don't deny it. But Ruthann, I want you to see there is more in me than just Vincor. There's you. Me? Well, yes, because of what happened all those many years ago. I've got Hayes flesh and blood in me, too. Your grandpa Bob's flesh and blood. Howling. Well, you always said Bob was a good man. Kind man, uh loving husband, a good father. I must be good somewhere. Why else would Shelley want to carry our baby or take me in the first place? They say Grandpa Bob could sell ice to the Eskimos, too. So that's a pretty ridiculous appeal that he's making right now. And she does sort of scoff at it. I like how Ruth Ann's like, Holling, come on, what are you... But, you know... He, he is trying to make a compliment to her grandfather, to her lineage, and it comes from the right place. And I think it's, it's the scene works because Ruthann is scoffing at it at first, and then, you know, she does have this great smile in the delivery at the end of the idea of, uh, they say Grandpa Bob could sell ice to the Eskimos too. So, like, Holling is trying to make an appeal here that is ridiculous and crazy, but... She accepts this as a um, as an apology in a way. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a crazy resolution, man. Like, <laughs> I, I really admire it for being so crazy and and I. Well, the it is weird. It's not the greatest, but I think I do think that they achieved it and they pulled it off. And I think that's kind of impossible. How would you How would you resolve this in this way? This is how they chose to resolve it. I think it works for me at least. I don't it's, know. Well, tell, I mean, me, tell me your side. Yeah. What do you think? Well, like, I don't want to, it's, you're right. It's, it's like a difficult needle to thread. <laughs> but so it's, like, I, it is there was no way they were weird. coming out of this. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. They're not coming out of this uh, without getting bloodied and battered. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I guess that's just like the best way you're going to resolve this. And, you know, she's saying like, yeah, you're being slick with your words. And that is like, I mean, that's that's the best way you can make the situation out. <laughs> the neat thing that I found was that she offers some deviled ham mm. at the end of the scene. So it's like, yeah, it's two things playing right here. Ham going along with the meat imagery and deviled, which, you know, it's just a word. It doesn't necessarily mean this. But when you think of the devil, you kind of think of like red. You kind of think of like nefarious things. 
So yeah. kind of going hand in hand right there. For sure. I think that def- that name evokes a lot, you know, so yeah, very weird plot line. And as you said, you, you know, this is the one that sticks out, at least for me. Uh, this is a very odd moment in Northern Exposure, but I'm here for it. I, I do like how they resolved that in a way. It's how do you do that? It's a very strange. I can't wait to hear what our guest thinks about this, but um, <laughs> let's, let's rewind it back to the beginning and maybe talk about Joel and Marilyn. Well, let's see. We mentioned earlier that Joel's like in the brick talking about, you know, they, everyone decides they would, they would eat Joel. He's the, he's the prime candidate, but that's not what his storyline's about. It starts off, let's see. Well, it starts off with like a close-up of Marilyn playing solitaire or something like that. She's playing cards. I like the, the faces on the cards. They look pretty cool. But Joel is talking about um, something to the effect of like, you know, you work for, for months and like it's pretty slow. And then all of a sudden one week comes by and you're super busy, cleans you out. We don't have any like this. We don't have any like gauze. We don't like he's like they run out of supplies. So he wants to send Marilyn to go pick up just uh, the expendables, you know, that's just the little things that they need, Band-Aids, whatever they need around the office. And he goes for his petty cash, the little stash of money that he saved up in the cabinets uh, behind Marilyn. And um, it's not there. It's like 40 bucks, but it's missing. And he's complaining to um, Marilyn. He's like, who would do something? Like he, he thinks someone, well, rightly, he thinks someone stole the money. Who would do something like that? Steal the Band-Aid money from the doctor. Right. And Marilyn has a guess that it is Hayden Keys because he had come in earlier and he got some, um, I, I want to say it was tea. I can't remember. It was, it was some sort of drink that he had. And in order to accompany it, he used some sweet and low. And while he was there, I guess he like bent down to go get more sweet and low or he just noticed that there was a cabinet there. It, I, it's not made like evidently clear whenever I was watching it. Maybe, maybe it is. And I was just being an idiot, but somehow these events conspire to have him discovering the petty cash and he would steal it. And Marilyn is dead set by saying like, it's definitely him. I uh, use my deductive reasoning skills <laughs> and Joel is naturally skeptical because he's like, well, like, you know, that might just be a coincidence. We can't just outright accuse this man right there. Yeah. Well, the the way I read it is um, I do think it's coffee. I think she says his coffee cup at least. Um, no, it's well, tea. It's tea. It's tea? I just found it. I just found oh, okay, it. Wow. I just rewind it. It says he was looking for the sweet and low for his tea. Well, that definitely throws out my theory of uh, a cup of joe because it is tea. <laughs> so there's no reason to call this episode Please, if you're listening to this podcast and have an idea of why this is called the Cup of Joe, uh, we have no idea. I thought I thought he was drinking coffee, but regardless, the Sweet and Low is located in the cabinets where Joel keeps the petty cash. So the fact that Hayden would need Sweet and Low, he would be opening that cabinet and he would be close to the petty cash. So it's like he might see it, he might grab it. Um, that's what Marilyn is suggesting, at least in this little detective scene that's going on. Right. And um, she says, she also says that he was furtive too. I like that word furtive. It means attempting to avoid notice or attention, typically because of guilt or a belief that discovery would lead to trouble. Secretive. Mm. Yeah, that is a really great word to describe what he is. And I, <laughs> I think we can see that in the next scene with him. Well, at least the way I read his character. I, I think that... <laughs> 
Lots of people might be able to read it in different ways, but he actually appears in the next scene involving Joel and Marilyn. He's waiting inside to finish out his operation with his toe, and Marilyn is still dead set on the idea, and Joel's still blowing her off, saying, like, <laughs> no, like, you know, got to get it through the system in order to have that. And Joel talks with Hayden. He says, like, be really embarrassing about this money that got stolen from me if I found out who did it and I spread it all around town. But <laughs> if I find the money just by itself in my cabinet, then I'll just let bygones be bygones right there. So he's trying to spook him. He's trying to get a read on Hayden. And he does look furtive, in my opinion, in this scene. <laughs> but Joel leaves the room and he says, nope, goal's a cucumber. Yeah, you know, I think I'm maybe, it is kind of hard to read him, but I think I'm with you, Charles. I think I'm like, this guy did it. He totally did it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Joel could not see that. He's like, it's no way it was Hayden. He was cool as a cucumber, as you said. No way it was him. And, uh, you know, I was, when I watched this scene, I was like, oh, I know this guy. I was like, Hayden, like that must be a recurring character. But then as we got closer in the close-up, I was like, oh, no, no, no. There's definitely like a, a large bearded man that appears in Northern Exposure, but it's not this same actor. This is also a large bearded man, but it's a different guy. Though he is a uh, recurring character, it turns out. I did look him up on IMDb. Though this is like the first episode that he's credited as being in, in Northern Exposure. Oh. So this is his first appearance on Northern Exposure, but he will return a lot. Though I swear, there's another guy that, that has a huge beard, Looks a little different, but similar build as this guy. Hmm. Well, that's the last that we're going to see of him for this episode because presumably he returns the money back to Joel and Marilyn in their next scene. Joel comes back inside his office. He finds like a sleeve of money in an envelope. And he's like, hey, what do you know, Marilyn? I guess you were right. I guess it was him. And he asks her and says like, well, how'd you do that? Like, you know, how do, how do you even have the skill? And she reveals that it's something that's genetic. So we're invoking again mm -hmm. the idea of skills and traits being passed down from people to people. And Marilyn says, nah, like every clan has a crime solver. Mine was the Angacock. It was like this bear. And that skill got passed down to me. Yeah, passed down from her grandfather. Joel is elated to learn that. I mean, he's just very impressed that Marilyn's this good. And he starts to enlist her help on another case, uh, the case of his stolen skis. Um, but she's like, nah, I'm good. I don't really want to help. <laughs> and he's like, come on, I know you for three years. I ask you for one favor and that's all I get. Actually, this is a really fun scene, I think, because it does suggest um, more conflict. We talked about focusing on conflict between the townsfolk in this season is like, we feel that at least from our observations and from notes from other viewers is that when David Chase joined the series, he like started to, you know, things are starting to rile up and like the townsfolk are more combative against Joel. And there's more like infighting between what we understand as like friends throughout the season, but there's more conflict between the townsfolk and the different characters. So now Joel is like, pretty angered that Marilyn won't help him. But I do think they retain some of that classic Northern Exposure dynamic because it's played mostly for laughs when Joel says, you know, I've known you for three years and I ask you for a favor and all I get is nah-uh. Well, I have to remember that. When a patient asks for my services, I'll just say nah-uh. And like he really plays that up <laughs> before like he's walking into his office as he's saying that. It's just a pretty um, performative bit. And I think it's largely comedic. I don't think it's very... um 
I don't think it's very combative between them, at least in this scene. Right. We end the episode actually with Joel and Marilyn. They're walking down the streets of Sicily, and Joel's trying to appeal to mostly like her civic duty. He, he uses a <laughs> parallel and says like, you know, there was like this woman and she got murdered on the streets and nobody helped her because they just turned their back on their social responsibility. They just let her fend for herself and society collapsed. And he's trying to parallel that with his own situation of how like, you know, if you just let this small crime happen, that it's going to escalate my, you know, if you don't return my skis, then where is the social order going to be? In a way, I kind of agree with Joel because like they do live in a small town that was a very expensive purchase. It's unusual that it would get stolen. So if something of that caliber can get stolen, that probably needs to be stamped out in the town of Sicily. Like you, you, you can't be having that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get where he's coming from right there. And Marilyn says, like, the reason I won't do it is because I don't want to look too much into people's like lives, their characters. Because the more that I put on my detective hat the more I'm going to dig into other people and discover more things about them that I don't want to. So like she relates it to being a cop and how like, I don't want to make people feel nervous. Well, yeah, here, let me play a soundbite and then we'll unpack this whole scene. You just want your skis back. That's not true. Yes, it is. Look, yes, of course I want my skis back. Okay. They cost me $500. No. What did I ever do to you? It isn't that. I just don't want to do it. What? Be a cop. You don't want to be a cop. They make people nervous. Nobody liked Grandfather. They acted different when he was around. Marilyn, cops serve a function, okay? They police. I don't want to judge people. Just as once? For me? Yeah, so just to backtrack on what you were saying, this is like, to Joel, in his opinion, this is a civic duty. I mean, I just watched the new Spider-Man. It evokes the idea of with great power comes great responsibility. Marilyn has this extraordinary power that Joel really does admire, and he thinks it could be put to good use, rightly so. Like, as you're saying, I think it uh, might be a responsibility, or at least in this case, that's a pretty hefty crime, perhaps, that might need some some help to solve. And I also just wanted to point out that, um, you know, M- Marilyn doesn't, like you're saying, she doesn't want to look deep into the lives of other people. She doesn't want to be seen as um, like someone who's infiltrating their privacy. But I also just think in a way, the way I read this scene, at least to, at least to interpret it for Marilyn is like, she thinks it's too large a responsibility. Leave it to the professionals because it's dangerous territory being a judge. Like she She's very talented and skilled at, as we said, deductive reasoning, figuring out what is this and that. But at a certain point, like she doesn't want to be the judge of other people. And in a large way, what she's doing, you know, she had some pretty good, um, some pretty good leads on this Hayden character. And turns out she was probably right. But in the end, she's making a lot of inferences on her own. So she could be like accusing him. Like, because originally Joel was like, you know, we have something in this world called uh, evidentiary process, you know, and Marilyn does find some evidence, but what I'm trying to say is like, maybe the truth of it is that she's making a lot of inferences and that could be, um, she could be wrong at one point, you know, at some, eventually she will be wrong and that will be a problem because, you know, she's not, she's not bound by regulation. She's not like a police force. She's not a judge. 
in a way, it's like a it's a skill that she has, but that's not her line of work. That's not her line of duty, at least now. She's not a professional at it. Yeah, that is a very interesting thing to go into because, like, you know, of course, ultimately, what do you do if, like, the system is itself not working? Then, like, everyone has, like, this fantasy of being like, oh, like, vigilante justice. Like, take it into your own hands. <laughs> like, the cops have failed you. But, like, uh, that is a very interesting notion that they're trying to explore right there. I kind of wish they would have delved into this earlier yeah. throughout the episode to talk about – um you know, where the limit and where the line is between enacting justice and trying to not encroach on other people's privacies or make them distrust you because you have encroached on their privacies. But it kind of served its function. Like, it's a pleasant way to end the episode. Marilyn steps off into the laundromat and Joel kind of just looks into a window. And I think he I think he heads into a building itself, I want to say. Probably his <laughs> office. yeah. I mean, it's a good way to end the episode. It's just like the seed crystal, just the the little bit of nugget of this idea that we're talking about. It's not fully explored, but we get, you know, it's just enough to give us a little bit. Because I don't know if I'd want to see an episode where Marilyn is like snooping around and it upsets people. Like we get the idea of why she doesn't want to do it. And it's powerful because it is the very last moment with this storyline. It's the very last scene actually of the episode. So it's just enough to get us there. But I think you're right. There, It is a big topic that could be explored. And they kind of uh, backloaded here. But I think it's a good place to end the episode, at least. But now we got to rewind to, I think, what we're calling our main plot line, which is Chris. Uh, it's what we start with, for sure, at least in this episode, as we described the opening soundbite. But um, I think where we left off was talking about how Maurice made this bet that Chris, uh, he bet Maggie $10 that Chris would fail his um, flight exam and uh, his flying license. I'm not sure what you call it, but this, you know, he would not get his flying license, Maggie says. Oh, I bet you he will. And I think the next scene after that is the soundbite that we played, right? It's like when Chris is studying late at night, Maurice is helping him like a dad would, helping him with his homework. And yeah, as as we said before, if you compare this to the first couple scenes that we saw, I almost wondered when I rewatched this episode, I was like, you know, you know, Chris finds the answer and Maurice is like, oh yeah, that's right. You did it, man. You're going to be a fly boy yet. I almost wondered if Maurice is lying this whole time and he's giving him the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, doesn't he say like in that same scene, he was like, well, I'm pulling for you, right? Yeah, which... Well, that's why when he said, I'm pulling for you, it reminded me of the previous scene. He's like, and I'm like, no, he's not really pulling for Chris. Is he lying this whole time? Is he lying? Mm. I don't think he is. I think he really is pulling for Chris. It's just kind of conflicting with what we just saw. Yeah. <laughs> he compares him to Chuck Yeager. Oh, yeah. He was a U.S. Air Force officer and also the first pilot in history to have exceeded the speed of sound in level flight. Ooh. So that's what he's comparing him to. And I think the big thing about this scene is that Chris reveals that he never studied. He was just just not a studious person. And even though he reads a lot, wisdom and intellect are two different skill sets mm. right there. And Chris, obviously very wise, but, you know, a little lacking on the hitting the books intelligence. Yeah. He's having a good time right now, but when it comes to being tested... It's, that's where it's going to be the problem. In fact, I think uh, the next scene is in the Sicily church 
where they're um, administering the test. Well, Maggie's administering the test to Chris. It's a four-hour test with two 15-minute breaks, which, God, that sounds so scary. But that's like, Charles, I feel like, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, we've taken like like the ACT or the SAT. Those are long tests as well. Like, I can't believe we did that. Why Why would you take a test for four <laughs> hours? It sounds terrible. There is... Mm, there is like lots of things in life that are like that. So like uh, the AP tests were kind of like yeah. that. Or, you know, this is invoking high school days. I know that the CPA exam mm. is like pretty legit. Okay. Like that one's really long. There's like four different parts to it. Like there are like th- weird tests that like test your endurance and stuff. But I did get a little freaked out when I saw Chris pull out that book in this scene. Uh, Maggie is his proctor. She's providing him with the material. She's going to be making sure that, that he doesn't cheat and that she's going to be grading his exams. But he takes the booklet out of the manila envelope and it is pretty big. It's pretty thick. Yeah. Like, it's pretty thick. I was like, he's only got four hours? That was my first thought. I was like, this is going to take more than four hours for him to complete. <laughs> um, we can kind of see the book itself. So what's happening is that Chris is opening the book and the camera kind of shifts in and out of focus because it's trying to mimic Chris's mental state. But he's going in and out of the moment. He's freaking out. And for a little bit, though, we can see the questions right there. Curiously, I don't, I don't know if this is something that actually is done in airplane test, but it starts at a answer to 3000 for some reason. Oh, I didn't. Like it starts at 3001, 3002, <laughs> 3003. I didn't read that, but that, yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's, it's really strange. And there's only three choices, A, B, and C. Instead of A, B, C, D. Sometimes there's E. Mm-hmm. Weird. I actually didn't, because yeah, it is Chris's point of view of the page, which goes in and out of focus. I didn't pay attention or I didn't try to pause it when it was in focus. It happens very quickly, so you probably won't notice unless you're trying to. But we got the Blu-rays now, so we're, we're trying to look at what text says. Typic, uh, usually we try to do that. It's got a it's got a curious question. I wonder if we can get this right. But this is the only yeah. one in which I think we might be able to guess the answer What's to. It it's uh, question number 3005. It says, the definition of nighttime is A, sunset to sunrise, B, one hour after sunset to one hour before sunrise, and C, the time between the end of evening civil twilight and the beginning of morning civil twilight. I don't know what the civil stuff is, but I will say that like starting at sunset, there's still light. It just starts to get dark then. Um, Though, you know, uh, should be noted that if you're making a movie or shooting a film, you know, you want to, you want to abide by sunset and sunrise because as soon as we start, as soon as the sun starts to set, even though it appears light outside, the camera begins to really lose a lot of light. So even though it may seem like we have sunlight left, as soon as the sun starts setting, it gets very dark in camera. But what is the civil twilight? What is that? I'm going to, I don't know what that is either, but like my test taking knowledge, which is actually pretty good. I made pretty good all grades. Right, right. Is that like, if it's like a fully detailed uh, answer and it's got like terminology in it, it's probably that one. It's like, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Nice. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe if you, uh, we should look this up, but if you know the answer, write into Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Who knows if that's actually on the, seems like it would be knowledge you need to know, I guess, if you're flying. Um, Oh, yeah. But yeah, so focus going in and out. Chris is also becoming audibly sick. Like he's making a lot of um, grunting. It sounds like he's on the toilet is what I wrote. (laughs) He really sounds like he has indigestion (laughs) or something. But 
I mean, at least it's uh, the, I was going to, I'm not trying to make fun of his acting. Like the intention is clear. He's very unwell. And Maggie rightfully asks him like, are you okay? What's going on? I'm going to run and get Fleischman. And it turns out, it, it seems like it's a panic attack. I think the next scene we see, Joel has run some tests on Chris. Turns out he's fine, but it is anxiety. It's like a panic attack. Right. It's something that he's never experienced before, except for one key instance. But Joel kind of goes through the list with them. He's like, you never had this whenever you had to ask someone out or, you know, in all the other instances of life, like being in prison and all that. Chris is like, no, I've always been like, fine. But wait, wait, hang on. Like there was one time like I short circuited and it's when I had to take a test in middle school, which again, I don't know how Joel didn't connect the dots right there. He's like, well, there you go, man. You just, you just freak out on tests. Well, it's when like his teacher asked all the students to start naming cloud types. And when it goes, you know, it's like cumulus. It's funny. I think, I can't remember what the subtitle said, but Chris says like, you know, cumulus, bumulus, like he just starts like making up cloud formations. <laughs> um, it's a, uh, it's also very interesting that he's having to name cloud formations since he's trying yeah, to apply to become a pilot. in the sky. But that was the like sort of the pop quiz in the moment where the teacher would go around the class and be like, name a cloud formation. He sort of like, he struck with anxiety when that happened. Put on the spot, I guess. I had, um, that reminds me of one of my accounting classes. It was cost accounting. I still remember it to this day because of how unusual it was, but also very effective. Is that, I think it was like 50 of us in this classroom, but the professor made it a point to call on all 50 of us every single class to answer a question. So she'd be going through her lecture and then be like, and Charles, what happens if it's done like X is equal to Y? And then I'd have to answer or if I got it wrong, you know, I just embarrass myself in front of the whole class. <laughs> and she did that every time we had a lecture. So like that really you put the fear yeah, into you, your heart. <laughs> you knew you were going to be called upon at least every class you get called upon at least once. Yeah, that was a very effective, strange strategy. And I can I can sympathize with Chris, you know, having an anxiety attack over that. Eventually, like we just got used to it. Or like, I think we just got comfortable with it, with each other. So we kind of like just made fun of you, but like in a good way. If you got it wrong, we're just like, ah, <laughs> oh, whatever, man, like a gym. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, you know, Chris is like, wow, anxiety. Interesting. Very cool. Thanks, Joel. I'm going to remember that son of a gun's name. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you've never heard of anxiety. Well, he's never had to deal with it. It turns out, I guess, according to this, uh, plot line, very hard to believe, but it, you know, I guess it can make sense because Chris is such a, yeah, he's such a, a specific, unnatural character. He's the same person who has, crazy pheromones that attracts like every woman, you know, in that episode. Uh, he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of uh, unique, things are weird in Sicily. Anything can happen, I guess. And the next thing we get is Maurice, again, sort of comforting Chris. He offers Chris a nice dinner, some brain food for Chris, like a nice two inch thick steak. Uh, some, I don't remember what the other item was. I think it's a uh, broccoli, broccoli, steamed yeah. broccoli, some brain food. I like this. Uh, yeah. I, I like that instance because I don't know if it's the acting or the writing, obviously probably a mixture of both, but he does seem really supportive yeah. during this scene. Like you can really feel the warmth coming from him. It's so, exactly what you want from someone to pick you up. Cause he's not, he's not belittling him. He's understanding which is unusual for Maurice. Yeah. He's doing everything to support Chris. Well, you remember there's an episode in the first season where Maurice 
literally a dot like once that he is adopts true. Chris as a son <laughs> for a short for one episode. So, but this is yeah, you know, so the father son roles are not. Um, it's not the first time this has happened, but it's uh, it's comfortable territory. I think like it makes sense. Like you said, I think it's very it's very nice to see this. Unfortunately, Chris has given up um, on the test. He's just not gonna. It's not gonna go for it. It's too hard. He says. He says flying is the easy part. It's the test. It might be a molehill to you, but it's a Matterhorn to me. Matterhorn, of course, I had to look this up, is um, a very like high peak. It's a mountain in the Alps. So yeah, a molehill to you, a Matterhorn to me. And I like this uh, sort of exchange. Maurice is like sort of giving them this pep talk. He's like, you look me right here in the eye. Tell me that flying ain't worth it. You tell me that being up there ain't worth all the tea cookies in Thailand. <laughs> but that was pretty interesting, all the tea cookies in Thailand. Actually, I think Chris is just like, whatever, man, later. Like, he just walks away. <laughs> yeah. I like the way that the scene is composed, though. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but they kind of align with the skyline. Like, Maurice and Chris, who obviously have different heights, are still within the trees in the background. But then you see, like, this really great white overcast sky above them. It's very picturesque, which is unusual. Maybe it's because there was a lot of uh, inside shots this episode, but this one really struck out to me. Yeah. There's also, yeah, I didn't think about that. There's also like some blocking going on where they're like, there's two positions. They're like standing by the Harley and then they're standing away from the Harley. And there's distinctive shots where like a character like Chris will walk into the frame as if like he's coming from the Harley. So it's like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like separating these two marks, the one by the Harley, the one away from the Harley. And those are like separate parts of the conversation. I I always think of blocking in a way, simply is a way to separate a block of dialogue, like how you you portion out different beats and moments. So there might be a moment where they're standing by the Harley, and then when they go talk on another subject, they step away from it. So this movement, it uh, visually shows them moving around, but it might also signify a change, not only in position of their characters, but a change in like the topic of what's happening in the beat, in the scene. I noticed that specifically, there's like a shot where we're on Maurice away from the Harley and Chris enters the frame. So it's like a, it's like separating it from, there's mm. just, there's like very little movement in the scene, but there is, they're not just standing still. They do move a little bit in this scene. I think that's such a fascinating thing to look into. I'm really glad that you have the ability to do that because I'm still trying to pick up on that yeah. uh, talent. That's still something in which like, I think you're definitely, usually, you're definitely pointing it out, especially in these last few episodes. I think you're noticing that a lot for sure. I can notice like the composition a little bit more yeah. uh, than the blocking. That's always been something that like, I, it's just in the back of my mind that I don't think about, but I should, cause I think you're right. I think that's like, I, I think that's subconsciously very important for the viewers to see, even yeah. though we might not recognize it. And like, you know, maybe like a large majority of people won't recognize it. It doesn't matter because it's effectively doing its job. Like you're saying, it's conveying like, this is a different beat. This character is going to convey this feeling. And it happens whenever he gets into the frame in this one day, or if like he moves over and therefore like the axiom of the conversation shifts, it's a bunch of important little details that all add up. Yeah. And they're exactly, they're very little, like it's not, you know, it's not broadcasting any information to you. It's simply just a character taking a step, but the change of scenery, um, not only does it have a meaning for what you see it, it like, sometimes it supplements the change in the, 
text of the script. But anyway, nothing huge in that scene. I just wanted to point out that they do move as well in that scene. Um, <laughs> but what happens next, I think is, oh yeah, wow, this is actually an interesting scene that I'd like to talk about. I don't really have a strong read on it, but um, this is after Chris has decided to turn down Maurice's uh, meal, his pep talk. He's Chris has given up on the test and he's sleeping in his trailer in this next scene and he hears a plane fly by. Um, we see like some geese early on. They're like crossing the frame in front of his trailer and later they're on the lake and they're like disturbed by the planes flying overhead and the geese like they're disturbed. They fly away. I think they're in slow motion too. They're like flying and Chris runs out of his trailer to look up to the sky and he sees four planes, like a line of four planes flying directly over his, uh, his whole spot there. And he says, oh man, Maurice. But I was like, wow, what is, it's a very interesting scene and obviously not a very, it's kind of a difficult scene to shoot because you got to time the planes, you got to get four pilots. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's significant that they shot this and they included it. Yeah, I, I don't know how to read this scene either. I'm guessing that it's calling upon, like, obviously Maurice's piloting experience. Whenever you see a plane, you kind of connect it with Maurice. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's basically what I see is just, like, planes are cool. Like, you know, the very beginning yeah, of this episode I, is <laughs> Maurice watching a plane in the sky, and he's like, oh, look at that. That must be Maggie. That's pretty cool. Like, Maurice at the beginning is um, talking about how cool it is to watch planes, and now Chris seeing the planes um, is maybe reinvigorated to go for his uh, flying license, I guess, pilot license or whatever. Yeah. It's a, I like the sentiment of what's happening here. Yeah. Um, I kind of wish it was a little bit longer so that we yeah. can get drawn to that conclusion. Cause I don't think I was drawn to that conclusion until just now. Yeah. It's a very brief feeling. Yeah. Right. But yeah, that kind of reinvigorates him for his love of flying. And that's what convinces him in the next scene to go see Maggie and be like, hey, I want to retake the test again. And Maggie's saying like, great, well, let's find ways to not trigger your test anxiety. We're going to go through things systematically. We're going to hold up each item separately. We're going to see what's going to cause you to freak out. So she pulls out various items. She's like, Here's a number two pencil. Here is like the uh, little meter in which you would um, adjust. Yeah. She calls it the, I thought this was just cool. I've never seen this before. The flight computer. It looks like go. a little yeah. turning disc that I guess computes the, I don't know, computes the flight somehow. Angles, I'm assuming. <laughs> I don't know. Right. And the neat thing about this is that they cut to each other's eyes mm. a lot. Mm -hmm. They cut to Chris's eyes and then they cut to Maggie's eyes. Extreme close-ups on the eyes, on the objects, the pencils, as you mentioned, the flight computer, as we talked about. And then it's all intercut with Chris's eyes, very close. And yeah, like you were saying, the whole effect of when Chris is looking at the test booklet and that scene we described, and it starts to go out of focus, we're like in his point of view, we're like focusing the camera lens on this feeling that Chris has. And now we're focusing the camera lens on extremely focused on these items. Nothing else. These are the items that are in focus that we're thinking, that Chris is thinking about. He's okay with the pencils. He's okay with the computer, the flight computer. But when Maggie takes out the test booklet is when um, Chris begins to have this panic attack. Right. Do you think those types of shots 
actually worked in live action. And by that, I mean like extreme close up of the eyes. Mm. Well, we've talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast, but one thing when we were talking about Charles live action versus animation, something that's like near impossible to do, I guess it's possible, but it's usually when it happens, it's a like it's a CGI effect is when you see someone's eyeball and in their eyeball reflection, you see something in their eyeball reflection. That's usually not happening real, but you see that a lot in animation sometimes. So it's like we see in the reflection of someone's eye what they're looking at. That's not what's happening in this scene, but that is um, very hard to do in uh, live action, not only for like getting the right angle of reflection, but you have to light whatever is being reflected. You have to light the eye and it has to all, like it won't show up if it's not lit correctly. But I think for this, I think it works effectively. Um, just to focus us, I think that's the intent of making these extreme close-ups. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but they're focusing directly on something, um, explicitly just this one object, not the background. I can't remember if the background is out of focus. I would imagine if they're so close, it might be, but, but yeah, whenever they're doing these close-up shots, but yeah, I think Mm -hmm. it's, the intent is just to focus us on nothing else. Like we're in the, we're in the zone with Chris. Right. I I appreciate the sentiment of what they're trying to do. And I agree that they, I, I agree with the sentiment. Like you're trying to draw focus to be like, all right, this is how extreme the situation is. We're just going to be looking at Chris's eyes. There's just something about it in live action that like extreme close-ups of the eyes are just unsettling. I don't know why. I, I, maybe it's yeah. exactly what you said. Like the lighting <laughs> has to be like, you know, almost inhumanely perfect for it to be pulled off but whenever i see it i just get a little bit freaked out by like the pores on the face just like the way that (laughs) eyes aren't perfectly structured there's like a lot of factors that are running in the idea is super cool and that's why i can work an idealized version of animation but like in this one i i I don't know i could never be sold on it it's not it's not very natural because never in real life do we ever usually get that close to a person and uh you know they say like the human eye most resembles the 50 millimeter lens, which is, um, well, I mean, if you're looking right now through your eyes, that's probably what it looks like to put a 50 millimeter lens on your camera. Now, these tighter shots are probably photographed with a more telephoto lens, something like 75 or even up to like 300 if you're, or even, yeah, I don't know, like you can get basically ideas like it's more zoomed in. So I feel like this shot that we're seeing of these extreme close-ups are using these longer, tighter lenses, which effectively is unnatural. It's not the same as your eyes or the 50 millimeter lens. Mm. So um, just by default, this shot seems a little unnatural. It's a stylistic shot to have. So that could also explain why it doesn't feel so effective, or maybe it feels a little weird for you to watch, Charles, when we go to these kind of shots, because we don't (laughs) get these a lot in Northern Exposure either. I guess Every once in a while, we get some flashy shots, but it's a, it's a stylized choice. Right. That's a great explanation right there. Uh, the scene is buttoned, though, with Shelly coming in, and she's giving Chris a good luck charm. She gives him her garter. She says she won Miss Northwest Passage with it. Yeah, it's for good luck. And, uh, you know, he's got a support net, and he's got the town rooting for him now with Shelly. As we'll see in the next scene, a lot of people are interested in his uh, in the outcome of this test. But at least in this scene, they're sort of doing um, meditations, which I think is like effectively 
whether you know it or not, the way we deal with stress every day, um, the way Maggie does this is she's like, press your fingers together. If you think about like those like meditation, like yoga poses where you're pressing your fingers together, that's what they're Mm -hmm. doing here. But the idea is like, if you're ever struck with anxiety, you know, free your mind of these, these triggering images and objects and just calm yourself in a way that's why you might meditate is to calm yourself. So that's what they're practicing here. Right. Well, that brings us to the next scene, which is going to be Chris inside the church. Now, we don't see him inside the church because we're in the exterior of it, where we see Maurice. I think he's drinking a coffee. Let me see. Mm. Let me make sure. Is that why it's called Cup of Joe? He's drinking something. It's not confirmed (laughs) if it's coffee. He's holding the cup. And Dave comes up to him and says, like, hey, you know, is uh, Chris in there taking his test? And then Murray says, like, yep, took real guts to get back on that pony again. Hope he uh, hope he succeeds. And then Dave says, like, I hope not. Got like a fiver <laughs> running on him. And at first, I freaked out because I was like, what? Like, I, I forgot they made bets. Yeah, you so, forgot like, that's we why talked the, about that, this. Yeah. <laughs> that freaked me out. So as we said before, like, the, if, if well, okay, I guess we should get to the end of this. Let's get to the end of this plot line and we'll talk about how this is kind of weird. Um, how it works out is Chris, uh, well, Maggie comes out first with the test results and she's like, I'm sorry, guys. It was the math. He couldn't hack it. So he failed the math portion, which actually, sorry, now that I'm thinking about it, it could be that in that first scene where in, uh, the soundbot we played at the beginning of the episode when Maurice is helping Chris, maybe mm-hmm. he is giving him wrong math to like purposefully. <laughs> but I don't think the I don't think the rest of the episode supports that, but- Anyway, yeah. it's math. But that is that, a hey, real quickly, that is, you know, hack. Kind of goes into hacking meat, like yeah. what uh because Holling, uh, Holling is like was doing chopping the the hair meat, you know, there. Right. Um, anyway, it's the math that flunked Chris. We do get a shot that I actually don't like when Chris comes out of the um test area. We get his point of view camera, and it's like a handheld camera. Mm-hmm. And we cut back and forth between Chris. You know, we see Chris and then we see his point of view and it's like, it's a little too close. Like the camera goes like close to like the different, because there's a huge crowd gathered outside. So we see everyone outside, which is what Chris is seeing. And he feels like he's let them all down. And uh, I think Maggie pays Maurice the bet, $10. Maurice says, I never thought I'd see the day when Alexander Hamilton couldn't make me smile. Of course, Alexander Hamilton's on the $10 bill. Um, We all know that. But I thought this was a nice little story arc. This is what I'm getting at. We feel bad for Chris, but in the end, Maurice learned that he like cared more about Chris. He cared a lot about Chris um, because in the end, he was like more sad that Chris didn't make it. So it's more, to Maurice, it's like less about the money. It's more about his friendship with Chris. But if I would have made this if I would have written this or rewritten this, maybe it just needed a rewrite, I guess. But I think it's what you're also talking about, Charles, is like we would have needed to have a, a scenario where, where Maurice would have the opportunity to sabotage Chris or to do something that would lead to Chris failing. Like Maurice would have had that option to do something mm. and then taken that and been like, well, this is kind of the perfect time where I could win this bet if I just did this. But Actually, I mean, I kind of want Chris to, you know, like Chris would have, I mean, sorry, Maurice would have to make this choice to, you know, defer the option of, of sabotaging Chris and, um, and accept or like, uh, take up the option of, 
mentoring Chris, which ultimately he does in the end. He's like, feels like a father, a mentor. He he wants Chris to succeed. Mm. I would have taken it in a different direction. So before I get into it, I'm going to get to the final scene with Chris, which yeah. is him being in K-Bear. Mm, yeah. And he's telling the listeners of like how he failed the test. It was like a pie in the face. But ultimately, it didn't matter because he tried. That's the most important thing. He gave effort into what he was doing. And as long as you do that, you could always hold your head high. I think that after this scene, they should have had one more scene where it was Maurice acknowledging his efforts and like Mm. them now, you know, acknowledging each other to be like, oh, you actually care about me. Uh, there's there's a relationship amongst us where it's not employer employee. You think of me as someone that you want to see grow up and develop. the The touching thing about Maurice is that he only reveals it to Maggie. He doesn't reveal yeah. it to Chris. And though Chris probably subconsciously knows, you know, I mean, he was helping him throughout the entire episode. I would have tied it all with a button that would have dampened the blow that Chris just experienced. Cause we're left with this episode with kind of like a good platitude. And I'm not yeah, trying to yeah. discourage it. I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, Chris has the right idea. I'm obviously all 100% for it. Yeah. It's just that that's the only thing that we have to comfort him. And Maurice is kind of left in kind of a sad state as well. I wish they would have brought those two together for one more scene. I know that kind of sounds like a very typical writing strategy right there, but hey, man, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they both have a a nice, cozy, positive conclusion, but they're separated. Like Maurice gets his nice conclusion. He learned like a lesson that made him better. Same thing with Chris. But, you know, have them come together because we love to see the friendship among these characters at the end of the episode. And yeah, I mean, as you said, when I saw this, I was like, I think Charles is really going to like this final broadcast that <laughs> that Chris says, because he reminds me of what you've been saying for the past couple episodes, the idea that there's no such thing as wasted effort, which is basically what Chris is saying here. You know, like, uh, what does he say? You can't hit the ball from the bench. I thought that was pretty interesting. But essentially all he's saying is, you know, at least he tried. And even if he failed, you know, I I bet he says, I don't know what he says. Yeah, it's better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. What does he say? It's like someone said that if no one did, they should have or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, but there's like, take it one step further, riders. Just don't be afraid. I I think that like they should have taken that. uh, Instead of just ending on that, I think that would have really elevated it. I, I think that's yeah. where I'm scoring a little bit lower for them. I don't know. Like, what are, what are we supposed to be getting out of this other than like just taking that lesson at face value right there? I wish they had added like a personal touch to it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. We got a nice little message, a nice little lesson in the end, but we need to have some some character, personal connection, some pathos going on, something that will really unite our characters in the end. I mean, I think it's a fine it's a fine conclusion that serves the story. But yeah, I mean, we tune in to see these characters hang out. So, I am with you there. I would have loved to see uh to see that happen. Maybe there's some deleted scenes. Oh, you know what? There is deleted scenes in this episode. There are three deleted scenes. Let's just quickly go over what happens in those scenes. Uh the first one, I think I know, I think I understand why they've deleted it. It's a scene between Chris and Ed. And it's a 
it's like three and a half minutes, four minutes long. So I think just purely for like the length of the scene, it's a pretty long scene. And um, what what is discussed in the scene is it's basically Ed goes to Chris to tell him about the diary that he found. And he outlines it pretty detailed, takes up a lot of time to get out the information that I think he more or less repeats to um, to, to Ruth Ann and Halling later. So it's the same information, just kind of spaced out longer in this three, four minute scene. But um, Chris's response is a bit, you know, it's, it is like an interesting idea that maybe isn't brought out in the rest of the episode, but just in this scene. Did you watch these scenes, Charles? I did. I watched them and I agree with you. I think that they had a reason for them to be cut. The only thing that I noted uh, of interest is not within the scene itself, but within what I learned Hmm. from when we recorded and now. (laughs) So Chris talks about how like back in the uh, old days, there was like cannibalizing that was happening because of like like a worshiping ceremony of yes, sorts, yeah. like people that would just, uh, they did it for like an honorary tradition. Uh, I didn't know this, but when you eat another human being, particularly like the brain of a human right. being, or even the brain of another species, you can get something called a prion, which is like a protein that folds onto itself. And it does this for like an eternity. And I don't really, I'm not a scientist at all. So this is like, (laughs) my explanation is not going to be like super great. But essentially, when you get this inside you, you're done. (laughs) You're you're not coming back from this. This is actually how mad cow disease starts. So like, uh, from my recollection, it was like, uh, somebody had the bright idea to feed cows the brains of another cow. And then like they ate it and then they got prion disease. And then like we ate that cow and then we got it. And you just like, you're just done when you have that. It's very frightening. And now that I know that, now I can be like, holy crap. That's like, yeah, we got to totally stop eating human beings. You cannot do this. cannibalism, please. Yeah. (laughs) What Chris is talking about, I guess, is, uh, yeah, he's talking about, I think he's, well, I don't want to, I don't want to say, I can't actually remember. I don't want to like misattribute this to a certain culture, but some culture you know, used to eat their fallen out of respect, out of like gaining more power or something. Um, But then he explains that, you know, when the Judeo-Christian thing comes along, we place more value in our corporeal bodies. So, um, you know, it's kind of a no-no now. Don't eat the body. Like that's, that's like holy in a way. And we must, um, you know, have a proper burial, things like that. Though he does mention symbolically, we still eat Jesus Christ all the time, you know, like the wine and the wafer. So it's still a, you know, cannibalism is still part of our everyday life, even if it's just a a metaphor in a way, but uh, very interesting. But yeah, the second deleted scene of this episode, these are all on the DVD that we saw. Um, It's Holling and Ruthann sitting by the fire at night. Like I'm presumably they're on their birdwatch adventure, you know, and we can see some awkwardness ensue with um, Holling trying to put Ruthann at ease because she knows about this cannibalism thing now and it's kind of put a put a wrench in their relationship. But awkward forced puns about cannibalism, like Holling says, you know, he starts off the conversation and he says like, you know, well, one man's meat is another man's and then, you know, whatever, he, he kind of cuts himself off. He does say, one of the puns, he says, would you like... Um, a cup of Joe coffee. I mean, you know, a cup of Joe, I'm guessing he's, that's supposed to be a cannibalism meme. Yeah. I'm guessing that's where they get the title from. 
So the title is taken from a, Somebody, a bad pun that got deleted from the episode. Yeah. So they, Whoever was in charge of this episode, <laughs> I'm not too sure whose responsibility it is <laughs> to like make sure everything flows. I'm guessing the producer. Yeah, like somebody sure. should have been like, yeah, they should have like watched the episode, uh, the airing of the episode, like, yeah. uh, you know, like the final cut essentially before it went on air and then took note of the the episode title name and be like, wait a second, hang on. That's this not mentioned. No like, sense. <laughs> yeah. Hang, rename the title guys. Like literally just go into whatever computer program they had back in the day and just like write that out. I, I think they dropped yeah. the ball on that. That or it's just like that person's, whoever's responsibility it was, it's their own little inside secret joke for themselves. That That's a terrible, yeah. You know, <laughs> no one would understand until the DVDs come out with the deleted scenes. But uh, I guess technically, you know, the only place you would see the title of this episode, I think would be in like the TV guide. Like, I don't think it, it's ever shown on TV, even in promotional, maybe in promotional things when it's like next week, Tune into Northern Exposure, Cup of Joe, or something, you know. But I don't think they would do that. But I don't know. I, I wasn't watching it when it broadcast. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. I mean, there's plenty of puns here. Uh, they talk about the coffee as having good a good body, and he corrects himself as you know, he means strong. He says to Ruthann, "We've both had so much on our plates of late. Busy, I mean. Well, it's been such a long time since we've had a chance to chew the fat. Um, talk." You know, and as he's doing all these puns, there's like a slow zoom in on Ruth Ann and we can tell she's really, she just doesn't want, she's had it with <laughs> this kind of talk. And yeah, so, I can, much. I can totally see why it's cut. I mean, honestly, I think I, I see the reason on all three of them being cut because that one is just really, you know, it's like you, you definitely don't need it. It's not adding any more to the scenes that was being done beforehand. Um, just reiterating and, that sort of relationship that's going on with Holling and Ruthann right now. Yeah. Right. Just more jokes, I guess. Right. And on the third one, mm-hmm. I don't think we actually need it either because it's essentially just the same scene as Chris taking the test while Maggie inspects him and he has the panic attack, but it's like more drawn out. Yeah. But from my recollection, like the panic attack itself is like a pretty serious cut. Like we yeah. we understand, like the audience members understand that this is something very serious. I don't think you need to build upon that idea even more. And the the scene in question that got deleted wasn't really expanding on it. The only interesting thing to note was that Maggie says, like, uh, I think she says, like, come at it from a place of anger. Find your find your anchor. Oh, anchor. Find your anchor. Yeah, your anchor. Because oh, that's what they were. <laughs> I I watch things with subtitles. Yeah, there's yeah. no subtitles on the deleted scenes, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. I was <laughs> like, like, what is, what is that going anger? on? Yeah, okay. I, but yeah, that's it. That's basically the, you're right. That's the only difference now is finding your anchor, as Maggie says, like that was her sort of like the meditations that she was teaching him to overcome his test anxiety. So we just get the same exact scene, only this time we notice that Chris is able to use these teachings to um to, to get him through the anxiety. But yeah, I mean, obviously the episode functions perfectly fine without this scene. And it almost... It almost is, um, it ha- has a more abrupt feeling when we find out that Chris failed the test, you know, without, if we cut this scene out, which we have, we cut out the deleted scene. Yeah. Whenever Maggie reveals that Chris had failed the test, it's even more abrupt and it kind of cuts even harder in, in a sense in that way, whether or not, you know, that's a, cause we've both said how the, the revelation that Chris fails the test is kind of a bummer, um, whether or not it needs to be undercut. Um, I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's cooler whenever it's uh, more abrupt like this without the deleted scene. 
All right, Lee, so we're going to go to the next part of the podcast where we like to introduce someone that's never seen the show before and have them see with their own eyes what we're talking about. And for this week, we have Sai, which is somebody that me and you knew during high school. He was three years, two years? Oh gosh, it was either three or two. He was above me. Yeah, I think <laughs> like he was one year matters. above me, so that makes him two years above two you. Two years, yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you will soon notice, he has a very distinctive uh, low timbre voice. (laughs) (laughs) It always makes me laugh. I don't know why. There's nothing wrong with the way he speaks. If anything, he has a very eloquent and very nice voice. Yeah, yeah. But it's just like when it comes out of him, it just makes me laugh. And just hearing it, you know, I mean, I've seen Cy, I see him every once in a while too, because he'll come to visit to New Orleans and I'll visit to Lake Charles. But, uh, you know, I haven't seen him in probably a few months or more, but just hearing his voice makes me think of his mannerisms too. Obviously, none of this is going to be insightful for the people listening who have never met Sai, but maybe someone's listening who has met Sai, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, Sai's a good friend. Uh, let's go ahead and hear what he has to say about this episode. All right. So uh, we're talking about a series called Northern Exposure, uh, specifically the episode A Cup of Joe, um, which is from season five. It's episode nine of season five, which places it toward the end, much closer to the end of the series than the beginning. Um, I've never seen this show before, and I'm only a little bit familiar with the name. Um, There was a TV show that came out, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, that uh, somebody said it's a lot like Northern Exposure, or it's supposed to be like Northern Exposure. And so I took that to mean it takes place in a place like Alaska. And it does take place in Alaska. It takes place in a small town in Alaska. So it's got those outdoorsy kind of vibes, which I like. I like the outdoors. I like mountains and trees. So this, this, you know, I don't know, the setting, great appeal to me. The characters going into this series, I had no idea who the characters were. You know, again, totally unfamiliar here. And so I didn't really know if, you know, these were the main characters, if these were um, a fraction of the cast. Uh, a lot of TV shows, if they have a lot of characters, you'll see whole story arcs that, you know, don't involve half the cast. Looking into it after I watch the show, I learned that these are pretty much all the characters. I think this is like everybody here. So anyway, I'm, I'm deep in the thick of it with the characters that matter in the series. The IMDB description of this episode is Chris tries to get a pilot license. Ed discovers an old diary and learns a disturbing fact. Marilyn acts as a sleuth. For whatever reason, you know, I think the, you know, the, the character we, we care more about here is the guy trying to get his pilot license because everybody has to take a test every once in a while. And, um, you know, you want him to get his, his pilot license. I was bummed when he didn't get it. I, you know, I thought, oh, surely this is some great character development. He's going to get his pilot license. You know, it's great. But I didn't know anything about him. And it turns out he is a <laughs> uh, an ex-convict who... Uh, is a DJ for this small town of um, Sicily or Sicily, Alaska. I'm going with Sicily, um, and he doesn't get it. So he, you know, he he returns to the studio with uh, you know some lesson learned type wisdom, I guess, at the end of the show, which is which is still character development, I guess, even though he failed to achieve his goal there. Uh, but what turned out most interesting to me. I think, or I think what we're supposed to really take away from this episode is, um, is, uh, Marilyn who 
uh, solves the mystery of uh, who stole the petty cash from the doctor's office. She works for the doctor and um, somebody steals the petty cash. And so she's able to figure it out pretty immediately. And near the end, you know, the doctor wants to get her to use her, I guess what he believes is a, is a talent for other purposes, for personal purposes. And she decides that she doesn't want to judge people. So she's not going to do that sort of work for him, which I think is this. I don't want to judge people is probably something that we're, we're really supposed to take note of. Um, and you know, learn not to judge people. So that's great. Uh, (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, that's probably not something that came from a nineties sitcom. It, you know, it probably occurred in a TV show long before it, but, uh, maybe it was something that we needed to hear at that time. So, uh, what else? I enjoyed, uh, some of the phrasing, a lot of the phrasing actually, uh, maybe some of the colloquialisms or maybe they were just things written specifically for the show. I'm not sure. Uh, at one point somebody says, ain't worth all the tea cookies in Thailand, which, you know, is nice. There was also as white as a, as a brick of lard, uh, that had to be in reference to Chris because he was so nervous about taking his test. He'd had a, an anxiety attack, it seemed. I wasn't sure if that was real or, or or faked at first. You know, I didn't know if he was just trying to cheat somehow, but I, I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna assume that he wasn't. He seems like a decent character. Although he apparently he'd been in prison, which I didn't get that vibe at all. And then somebody, uh, the girl from, um, you know, Cliffhanger pointed it out. So, okay. Cool. Ex-convict. Now he's a DJ. Trying to get his pilot license, turn his life around. Sounds good. Definitely the, you know, one of the more philosophical characters from the show, which there's always got to be one of those. (laughs) But he was really likable. On the whole, good, enjoyable episode. I would uh, try to find the time to get to the beginning of this series and check it out. Uh, But I have a terrible attention span. So, uh, all of this could be totally meaningless. (laughs) It was a lot like, uh, you know, Twin Peaks without a corpse, which is good, of course. But again, on the whole, great show. I would uh, check it out more. Thanks for playing. Cheers. All right, that was Sai with his commentary right there. Sai likes to mention that he really enjoyed the outdoorsy vibes Mm. of Northern Exposure. And I bet, like, if he was going in completely blind, yeah, I guess he just wouldn't know. Like, uh, the show is going yeah. to be, yeah, have all of that, uh, environment with it. Some of our guests have, have wondered that it's like, where are we? Is this Canada? Like they didn't know, uh, initially. And then at some point it says Alaska, though there are probably episodes where they don't say Alaska. Um, so some, some <laughs> guests I think don't really know where it's set unless they look it up, I suppose. But, um, yeah, it checks out. Sai says he, he likes the outdoors. I, you know, I went on a really great camping trip with Sai back in the college days, uh, which was a lot of fun. I, I always think about that. Um, hey, where did you guys go to? Uh, we went to, like to, te- uh, in like Texas with our friend Kyle. Oh, okay. Who has yet it. to appear on this podcast. We got to get Kyle on the podcast I, very do you soon. Associate, do you associate those two together? What, who? Kyle and Kyle, Kyle and Sai? Yeah. Uh, no, not typically, but I guess. Really? I guess, oh, you mean like, are they similar in in ways? I guess. Yeah. 
<laughs> just even in appearances. appearances? <laughs> just like, you know. White guys, I don't know. <laughs> well, like, they're really skinny and yeah, uh, yeah. like a slender build, and they like have like kind of like the same interest. <laughs> like, they're like the same age as well. Like, I always they're get the same them person. Sometimes confused. confused. What? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Um, but yeah, no. Uh, yeah, so that checks out. And Northern Exposure, if, if anything, is beautiful for its. It's landscapes, you know, it's, that's really impressive for, you don't really see that in a show like on, on its same, on its same level, you know, it's definitely operating on higher levels than just your typical sitcom with these just beautiful Mm -hmm. locations. Um, And Cy mentions that there was like, someone had mentioned to him before that a show is like, it's, it's like Northern Exposure. They're trying to describe another show to Cy. And that's kind of how Cy maybe first heard about Northern Exposure. I just texted him to see, like, what were you talking about when you said that? And he said he had to, like, look it up again. But he was, someone was trying to tell him about Men in Trees, which was like a, oh, we, we yeah, talked about that what, one. Yeah. yeah, we watched that. <laughs> we watched that with some other pilot, uh, pilot episodes of other series that are described as being similar to Northern Exposure. We did that on the Patreon. Uh, it was Men in Trees, Resident Alien, and Doc... Doc Martin. Sorry, I forgot mm-hmm. the doc's name. Um, but yeah, those were some pretty great shows. I think Doc Martin, we we said, was like one yeah, of the best. Yeah, that was like, still, yeah, still really like, I still think about that. I'm great like, that pilot. was like, cut above, cut above the rest of those two right there. So yeah, similar uh, shows to Northern Exposure. Go ahead. Sorry, I was cutting you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say, like, um, he, he talked about the phrasing and colloquialisms mm. that he enjoyed in the show. He said, like, uh, <laughs> oh, the tea in Thailand, white as a brick of lard. Um, yeah. and that one got me thinking because wasn't there a lot of meat? I'm sorry, we're, we're reviewing our um time span right now, <laughs> we're recording like a few weeks afterwards. Um, so like the episode's not fresh in our minds, but I believe this episode had a lot of cuts of meat, in right? It. There was a lot of meat, and also some there's like at least two mentions of fat because they say right. suet and they say lard, yeah. So white as a brick of lard is a very curious one for them mm-hmm. to use right there. <laughs> But yeah, there's definitely some really great lines of dialogue in Northern Exposure, not just this episode, but I definitely really liked that, particularly the um, the tea cookies in Thailand. I don't think I'd ever heard that one before either. Uh, I like that Sai was saying, so he's talking about Chris taking this test, and at first Sai was unsure if Chris was just faking an anxiety attack, maybe somehow to cheat uh, on this test, but uh, it quickly he realized, no, Chris is not that kind of guy. Uh, he wouldn't like cheat or he, you know, he's, he's really having an anxiety attack and thought it was interesting that Cy also said like he didn't realize he wouldn't have guessed that Chris is an ex-convict, but that is part of his backstory that is revealed in this episode. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because I don't think I would guess that either. Like if you saw that. I think though, I guess we learned that about Chris probably from, I would assume from the second episode, which is the first episode that Chris is in is in season one, episode two. I mean, well, granted, he's at the end of the pilot. He's at the very end of the pilot, but he doesn't have any lines. I think there's a scene of him that was cut out of the pilot where he either has like one line or he has no lines as well. It's in the brick, whatever. Chris is uh, not really introduced until the second episode of the series. And in that episode, I'm pretty sure he's got to be talking about the joint, like being in jail, you know? Right. Um, but but yeah, you know, not something you would expect. It's an interesting uh Interesting characterization. Another interesting characterization that I bet Sai didn't pick up from this episode because it's probably not mentioned, but um, 
you know, Maurice being an astronaut, that's a thing, or an ex-astronaut. <laughs> um, I forgot about that sometimes, but he is, that's like part of his character. Anyway, back to this episode. What else? Cy points out the girl from Cliffhanger, that's Maggie or Janine Turner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he recognizes her from the movie Cliffhanger, which one day we're going to have to talk about, I'm sure. Uh, still haven't seen it, but I'm, I'm excited to watch that. Um, what else have we got here? The philosophical character, Chris being sort of like uh, this philosophical character that, you know, Sai says, you know, you always got to have one of those on a TV show. But really, it is true. Like, it is sort of the mouthpiece for the writers, I think, a lot of times. You know, maybe more so in this season. No, I think, I think generally in, in a lot of episodes, Chris is used as sort of like, as another guest has pointed out, like the Greek chorus, who just sort of like really shapes the the uh, the themes and ideas behind the plot and kind of brings those into focus every once in a while when he, with his broadcasts. Yeah, you definitely got to have one of those in your television show. Somebody <laughs> that can just summarize the events right there. Just like provide meta commentary, something which Northern Exposure, you know, greatly benefits from. And I think, you know, it is, if you think about it as a trope, sure, it's like maybe it can be considered like an overdone trope. But I do think it is a very, like, it's one of the strong suits, at least in Northern Exposure. It is one of the more, it's one of the things that I like the most about it is Chris's monologues. He's probably one of my favorite characters, as I mentioned before. But um, but yeah, I think that's about all I got from Sai's commentary. I have one last thing. He just talks about the show feeling like Twin Peaks without a corpse, which, uh, yeah, of course, the the two shows ran concurrently. A lot of guests get that vibe. I guess both are Pacific Northwest sort of uh, settings, uh, very different in tone, but, you know, kind of like running at the same time, at the same like era of, of time. Yeah. Well, Charles, that'll do it for this episode of Northern Exposure. We're going to be back next week to talk about the 10th episode of season five. I think this one is a fan favorite. It's called First Snow. Um, well, I mean, the title obviously might suggest that there's going to be some snow <laughs> In the next episode, but what, what can you guess might happen with that? Uh, I'm going to guess that like there's a lot of new experiences being done. So along with the snow uh, falling down into Sicily, it's coinciding with uh, something that's being done for the first time as well. Lots of firsts. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to talk about that next week, Charles. Until then, um, I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Cy for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.